Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we begin the Gospel of Mark. We'll read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Mark sets the stage by telling his readers that this is good news, though we will see even in these first 20 verses that we're not talking about a puppies and cotton candy kind of good. We're talking about a deeper good, a harder one, that involves significant struggle for everyone who pursues it, all the way up to the proverbial C-suite. But oh, it's such an empowering good. When we read how the heavens respond to Jesus' baptism, we have to wonder, what if we took seriously the possibility that the events here on earth can reverberate in the heavens, maybe even change the course of things? What if we took seriously the invitations that we ourselves encounter to reorient our actions toward a horizon other than whatever the empire has laid before us? What would be possible? Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. It's good to see you. Hey, Amy. It's good to see you, too. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Woo-hoo! I have a wild adult birthday plan. Oh, adult birthday just put a whole other lens it on did. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't talk about that on the Bible. Word. <laughs> I know. Adult <laughs> birthday is like you wear sweatpants and sit around and, and eat cake. No, adult birthday is like you clean the house and go to work. Oh, like, yeah. That's adult like, oh, birthday. Yeah. That's, well, that's really you know, sad. Adult birthday. Okay, but here's this is here's the the best part of my birthday so far. I'm sure the podcast will beat it, but it's going to be hard. Yeah. I talked to my dad, who is 77 and about 135 pounds, uh-huh. and he said he has entered some powerlifting competitions. <laughs> yeah. He is very strong. Like he's in great shape, and he's like, I think you know, I think I could set some records. Like there's one that. If I could get down to 130, I could, you know, whatever. So he's so excited about this. And then at the end of the call, he was like, I have to go because I'm going to be coached. And he was like, this gym, Amy, it is far away and it is not a nice gym. This is not Jack LaLanne. This is <laughs> like, it is dirty and there's no locker room and it's just you and some weights and I got to go. That's so that's awesome. where I'm going. Yeah. And I'm like his sheer delight at this new activity, which is, I'm just, it makes me so, so happy. I'm so happy. And I hope he sets world records in powerlifting because that would be the greatest thing ever. Is it the sort of thing where, so he's got a weight class. Is there also like an age category? Yeah. So like for his age and his weight, well, that's why he's like, this is my time. 130 (laughs) pounds, 77 year old weightlifter. Like that's gotta be a fairly small category. I mean, yeah, he's always liked lifting weights, but it does get easier. As he said, like, it's easier to win races when you're really old because no one else your age is running. Yeah. That has been just like basking in his delight has been the greatest. Yes. 
gift to me so far. Even better than cleaning the kitchen, which is its own gift. But, it is its own you know. gift. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> is it? I can't it's believe you have kitchen. to clean your own kitchen on your birthday. It's you horrible. To, to Adulthood is the worst. Why yeah. do we do this? <laughs> my my daughter's been on this kick. I mean, it's, I was like this when I was a kid too, but she's like, adults get to do whatever they want, whenever they want. And I'm like, mm, do baby we? girl. <laughs> do Adulthood we is basically doing a bunch of things you don't actually want to do. Yeah. And then every once in a while, a you get to record a podcast. Yeah. Let's record a podcast. Let's do it. Bobby, Exercise we're starting, our free will. We're starting <laughs> a new book today. We are. I mean, it's we're starting the gospel book. that we're going to. Okay. It's, yeah, it's kind of old, but okay, fine. We're starting the gospel that we will be reading this season in near entirety. Yes. Which is a gospel of Mark. We've been in the New Testament for a couple weeks, for a little, for a minute, well, for a week, and then for Christmas Eve. Right. But we were reading Luke because Mark ain't got no baby Jesus. And so, no baby Jesus. <laughs> no. So it's not a good, like, Christmas text. Terrible Christmas text. <laughs> the worst Christmas text. No, I'm sure there's a worse one. So as we transition into Mark, what what should we have in mind? I know you can't just like give us a whole history of a whole gospel on one foot, but what would you want us to know? Well, a couple of weeks ago on the, I think it was the Zechariah text, I sort of gave an introduction to the Roman period in Judea in the context of the gospels. Mm. So I won't do that again, but that's sort of a background here. It's We're in a period of Roman occupation of Judea, which I think is actually important to at least my reading of Mark's gospel. And we are, the gospel is set in the, I don't know, around Jesus died around the year 30, maybe. So the setting of the gospel is about the year 30. Most scholars think that the gospel of Mark was the first of the gospels that we have to have been written. Maybe there were some other things around before Mark that we have been lost in the sands of time. But of the canonical gospels, Mark is the oldest one. And most scholars will date it either to just before or just after the Roman destruction of the temple in the year 70. Whichever place that you date it, the context in which it's being written is the context of Jewish revolt against Rome and a vicious Roman suppression. The, the revolt lasted four years, was fairly substantial, and it resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And so that's sort of hovering in the background, even though Mark is telling the story of things that happened mm-hmm. 40 mm-hmm. years earlier, mm-hmm. he can't help but tell it against the backdrop of his own time. Of course, of, of where he where he is right in that moment, because we understand that events of the past in light of the life we're living. Exactly. Like exactly. That's, that's, that's how it goes. It is. Mm-hmm. Mark is kind of famously bad at Greek. <laughs> so uh, his, his my, Greek is very... A man of my own heart. Yes. I'm also yes. famously bad at Greek. Mm. <laughs> his Greek is very sort of functional, right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't talk in flowery language. And so oftentimes, if Matthew and Luke tell the same story as Mark, they will sort of massage his Greek a little bit and make it prettier. That said, Mark is also understood as being a brilliant storyteller. 
So I sort of imagine him, like this gospel makes the most sense to me if I think of it as originally an oral tradition that you could imagine people sitting around the campfire and the Mm -hmm. author of Mark is saying, let me tell you this story about Jesus. The pacing of it, the way he uses references back and forth between stories. He's Mm -hmm. sort of famous for patterns of three or telling Mm -hmm. one story and then interrupting it to tell a whole different story and then coming back to the first story. He's got these narrative techniques that we know from sort of other storytelling cultures that are pretty interesting to pay attention to. So brilliant storyteller, not a great uh, flowery writer. Anyway, that's some things about Mark. I don't, Mm, there's probably other things we could or should say. Well, there's always more one could say, but Mm, one has limited time. That is true. That is true. (laughs) Okay. Can I ask you one? I think this is a remedial question. I'm famous for the remedial questions in the New Testament. If, if Mark's, Greek is famously not so great. What did he, do we imagine he's like Greek was his primary language or he spoke Aramaic or do you have any idea? There is an argument about that in the literature. Most people agree that the gospel itself was originally written in Greek, that it is not Mm -hmm. a translation Mm -hmm. of an Aramaic document. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The question of whether the author was a native Aramaic Mm -hmm. speaker who was writing in Greek is sort of an open question. Got it. He does use a fair amount of, like a lot of his sentences start with, and this, and that, Mm -hmm. which as you well know, in Hebrew narrative, that's kind of the way that things are often constructed. And so maybe he's writing that way. He -hmm. does explain from time to time. He'll say something in Aramaic to his, and then he'll explain what it means Mm -hmm. to his Greek audience. Mm -hmm. And so he's doing a little bit of this translation work back and forth. So he at least is familiar enough with Aramaic to know how to make the transition translational moves. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of interesting to think of him as a, Greek as a second language sort of speaker. It'd be like if I tried to write the, write uh, a very important story for history in French. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he probably does better than I would do in that. I think place. I think he actually does really quite amazingly well. Yes, yeah. I don't mean to give I don't mean to give Mark a hard time, but yeah, yeah. Well, our our reading today is Mark chapter one verses one through twenty. Yes which is a lot of verses. So I think we should just go ahead and start. I think so. Let's do it. So I'm reading from the NRSV. Bobby, I know you usually look at the Common English Bible. Yes. So you should listen carefully because my I know that my translation is very different at the beginning. So oh, interesting. Listen. I'm Not listening. very different. It's it's different to me in, in ways that feel important to me. Okay. Now I'm so intrigued. I did not know this. <laughs> okay. Verse one. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, I know you're going to say I shouldn't stop there, but I have to stop there because that's like one sentence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has it has the little introduction, you know, is one sentence. But I am, I want to diagram that sentence that starts as it is written in the prophet Isaiah and then 
the subject of the sentence doesn't start until two verses later. John the baptizer. That is so interesting. I know you're looking at a different translation, but do you have any anything to say or any particular thoughts about like how the different parts of this sentence or this thought are related to each other? Like it just covers so much. It covers so much ground. It covers so much ground. Yes. No, when you kept reading into that verse four, I was like, why did you keep reading? Like, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> and Mark wants us to have it all at once. Like, you got to know all this in one breath. Uh, yes. I'm, I'm so fascinated thinking about that. Yeah. I And he's got like, I mean, <laughs> he's like in between the commas, like in these like dependent phrases, these little, like if I want to diagram this. Yes. My son is 17 and is very tall. And sometimes he likes to remind us how tall he is by taking all the stairs in one step. Whoa. Like taking one giant step. Is he like eight feet tall? How rest. tall is that guy? <laughs> well, it's not like we have 25 stairs. But he likes to, you know, flaunt a little bit. But that's, that's, that's the image I keep getting in my head starting this. Like, we have somewhere to go and we yes. are going. yes. I think that's exactly right. I, and Mark sort of has a reputation of breathlessness. And so mm. I appreciate you're sort of pulling that out. It's, and immediately, and immediately, here, this thing happened. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it has an urgency about it. Yes. The content of it, you know, he's telling us immediately, like, in that, even that first phrase, this is the beginning of the good news. So we, we know it's gospel. We know it's got to be good news. We've talked before about the fact that that euangelion is a thing that the Roman empire used to talk about great things that happened in the empire. It's to announce like things that the emperor has done that have changed or preserved the world as we know it here. That phrase is being applied to the gospel. It is also saying this thing you're about to hear, which spoiler alert ends in a crucifixion <laughs> is good news. Right. And so yeah. The story you're about to get, this is good news for the world, even though the story itself is going to be really complicated. Yeah. Then you get the, the title Christ, which is, you know, is the Messiah. And you get the title Son of God, which is mm-hmm. so, so much you can do with that. And we haven't even gotten to the first comma yet. You know, that's exactly right. That's And all of this is like the background that he wants you to have in your mind before you arrive at the subject of this, the subject of the sentence, John. Which turns out to be John, which is which sort of like a, to be John. a little a bit of a head fake because you think, here's the good news of Jesus. And then, yeah. by the way, we're starting with yes. John, contextualized within that passage, which is mostly from Isaiah 40. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about Son of God? Like what that, what that title yeah, might mean. Yeah. Or sure, yeah. Here's my, here's how it resonates for me. I am pretty sure that there are places maybe in Psalms where, where son of God is not meant literally in any way, but is, is a reference to the king. Like the king, like King right. David has a special relationship to God. And in some, you know, we know that in some other ancient Near Eastern cultures, there is this sense of like a very, very, very clear connection between king and God that borders on king being, yes. <laughs> having some divineness about them. I, I don't see that in the Hebrew Bible use of this phrase, but for me, it evokes that kind of, the chosen king, the chosen, yes. the chosen 
leader. I think for readers who are not familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, son of God sounds like a, immediately sounds like a declaration of the divine status of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But I think you're exactly right for readers of the Hebrew scripture and for a Jewish audience, which at least Mark's audience seems to be part of the audience seems to be Jewish. It would not have that resonance immediately. It would have the resonance of like one with a special relationship to God and somebody in a position of authority in a Roman context. Caesar was thought of as the son of the gods. Mm-hmm. And so it can be read if you read it in the Roman context as mm-hmm. a, either a comparison between Jesus and the emperor or even a dig at the emperor to say mm-hmm. like this is the actual son of God, in which case there is an ontological mm-hmm. divine status being claimed there. Mm-hmm. So there's so much contained in that one phrase. There, there is a debate about whether or not Mark's gospel thinks of Jesus as a divine being. And that's a whole complicated argument. And I think that maybe it does at the end of the day, but it is very different than a gospel like John in which we've seen a couple of years ago, Jesus is saying, I am the father and I are one, or Mm -hmm. the gospel is telling us that Jesus preexisted as the word in the primordial times. Mark's gospel is much softer about Jesus's divine status. And I think can actually be read productively thinking of Jesus not as actually being divine at all. That's at least not the most important thing to Mark. To Mark. Gosh, there's so many resonances we could pull out. I want to just touch briefly on this prophetic text that that we've you know mentioned already that is contained within verses two and three. And it, it says in the text, it is from the prophet Isaiah. Yes. The, the second part of it is from the prophet Isaiah. The very first line is actually from Malachi. And yet the, my messenger, that is the word Malachi. Like that's yes. in Hebrew, that's, that's what that is. And in Malachi, it says, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of me. Ah. Because it's God speaking in Malachi. Here it is changed to you, but then it's bumped up against this text from Isaiah 40 about preparing yes. the way. So I think it's still, I think it's still the same reference, right? That you're preparing the way for the Lord, whatever that means. Yes. And I think it's really artful the way that Mark has chosen these these two prophetic texts that both have this kind of, again, like this forward motion, like something is starting, something is happening. We are moving down a path and yes, it is, there is momentum in this text already. When you read that way that Mark has taken that prophecy and played with it and it says before you, do you read that as you, dear reader, or do you read that mm. as you, Jesus, who we just mentioned in the previous verse, mm-hmm. who's being addressed there, do you think? You know, before I went back and looked at the Malachi quote and saw that it, in that context, it's me, mm-hmm. I think in when you first encounter it, like just the beginning of verse two, I think it's not clear who it is. I'm sending yes. my messenger ahead of you. I don't know who that is. But then when he puts it together with verse three that says, prepare the way of the Lord. Right. That suggests to me that, you know, we have prepare your way, put in parallel with prepare the way of the Lord. So I, I think that he is referring to the Lord in, in what, again, like what exactly does that mean? We don't quite 
know yet. Yes. I like that. So it's, it's sort of a talking almost to Jesus saying this messenger, John is going Mm -hmm. to prepare your way and you are Mm -hmm. the Lord. I like that. I also think you could hear, you know, you hear yourself in there as a reader. Whenever somebody says your, you're like me, Mm -hmm. mine. Yeah. And so (laughs) (laughs) maybe there's a secondary reading too, where you sort of see yourself included in there that the way has Mm. been prepared for you, that's actually sort of the way we talked about that in Isaiah 40, actually. is That preparing. is how I usually read it in Isaiah 40, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we had, in that episode, as I recall, we talked about preparing the way for God is also preparing a way. Once the king's highway is prepared, it is a highway that other people can also use. And so maybe these are not two separate options, but are sort of sequential to one another or something like that. Yeah. Okay, we need to push forward, and we will. We're going to learn a little bit more about baptism in a minute, but we just in verse 4 encountered, now that we have a person, John the baptizer, who is who is baptizing. But what does that mean at this? How do you understand that at this yeah. time in history? That is such a complicated question, Amy. And yeah, I don't sorry. know that the answer, no, no, no. I mean, it's the right, it's exactly the right question. I just mean, it does not have a, here's the answer. Yeah. Put it on a multiple choice test and that's the one. It has resonances, as you know, with purification rituals in Judaism, the mikvah mm-hmm. and so forth. So sometimes that is one frame in which people put it. There is also in other forms of Judaism in this period, like the sectarians at Qumran, baptism was used as a, basically as an initiation rite. When mm-hmm. you join the community, mm-hmm. you have a baptism that marks your transition from not being part of the community to being part of the mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. Those two ways of understanding it are not entirely distinct. Mm-hmm. Although the sort of, more mainstream Jewish tradition, as I understand it, the purification is an, an ongoing process. It's an ongoing sort. process, but I, it, the way I think about it, as you're saying, is not is really like they are they are marking a transition in your state of being yes. in some way, and so it could relate to something in your body, something physical, or it could relate to conversion, or it could relate to joining a new community. But it, it's yeah, yes. it's, it's sort of marking like a, I like that. Yeah, something is shifting. Well, the way the CEB has it, which is a little loose, but I think is actually a really nice mm. way of getting at the sense of it. They were being people were being baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives mm. and wanted God to forgive their sins. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think it does have that sense of change of one's state. Mm-hmm. I think think it does have the sense of somehow being cleansed of some impurifications that you have carried in your body. I think it does have the sense of initiation into a new way of life. Mm -hmm. The way that I frame it for myself is that these folks have been living a life in the Roman Empire and they have sort of lived by the values of the empire maybe also living out the values of their religious background and not recognizing that there is a conflict sometimes between those two, as is also true of many of us 
who live in our culture and live out our religion and think they go together when maybe they don't. And so one of the ways, one of the ways I think about this is John calling people away from simplistic loyalty to the empire and saying, no, you've got to stop living that way and recommit yourself to the values of the religious tradition, which in John's case is Judaism, Mm -hmm. saying this is a call back to the Torah and recognizing that we have not been living that way, but we can yet still live that way. And so this marks that move. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I get to Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Would you Mm -hmm. nuance that differently or add something? No, I mean, I think, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense and it's in keeping with what I understand this ritual, how I understand it to be functioning at that time and, and still today. Yeah, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from Bible Worm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoyed the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast, but if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Okay, I, can I pick us up? Yes, please. So I'm picking up in verse five in one of these sentences that famously starts with and, as you pointed out before. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I don't want to linger on this too, too long, but I do for sure want to pull out another connection to the the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew Bible tradition that uh, is evoked from the way that he's describing John. Mm -hmm. So if this were like a, guess who game you know those yes. games where you like have little cards stuck on your head and someone has oh, to describe yeah. like yeah. who's on your little forehead card okay so i've described the guy who's on the little forehead card bobby who is john supposed to evoke elijah elijah yeah yeah elijah's a, a woodsy guy too yes <laughs> yes he's described in very similar terms Why are we talking about Elijah? I think we're talking about Elijah because of Malachi, which talks about Elijah as sort of heralding the arrival of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. 
Elijah, as you well know, in 2 Kings 3, he doesn't die at the end of his life, but he's transported into the heavens via a fiery chariot, which is where we get the song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Mm-hmm. And he's carried bodily up into heaven. And so it's understood in the tradition that Elijah has not died. And so that Elijah is fully capable of returning. Mm-hmm. And so by having this reference to John the Baptist as the messenger who looks like uh, like looks like Elijah, we've sort of established this connection that here comes John in the way that we've been expecting Elijah, which means the Messiah is about mm-hmm. to come onto the scene. Mm-hmm. That's how I put it together. Mm-hmm. Is that how you mm-hmm. would put it together? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's how I put it together. Do you think it's strange that he doesn't, I don't know how he would subtly name drop Elijah in here, but his audience has got to be pretty literate to get, pick up what he's laying down. Yes. Maybe literate's the wrong word, but it just makes me wonder about his, his audience, I guess. Yes. I mean, this is a, maybe a weird analogy, but I have young children. And so I watch a lot of television that is designed for young children. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes it's working on another level because it mm-hmm. knows that adults are watching. The good it. shows work yes. on both levels. Bluey, yeah. yes. And so I wonder some, and, but it, it totally the shows make complete sense. Yeah. To my kids, even though they're missing a whole other level, and yeah. so I kind of wonder if this is a little bit that. Mm. Like you could hear this and be like, "Hey, there's a woodsy dude who's eating grasshoppers. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And then if those who have ears to hear are like, "That's Elijah," and yeah. so. So, but at, at the very least, I think you're exactly right that some of Mark's audience is knows enough about mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish tradition, that they're picking up all these references. And I love I love that point, Bobby, because even if you have if you don't know this is Elijah and you're not picking up any of those references, what you know about John is like he's he is not living in like the penthouse apartment in some right. you know Roman. <laughs> center of economic power. Like the man's eating bugs in the woods. Yes. So at least we know that yes. about him. And that's important, I think, because John is calling people to a different way of life, mm-hmm. which is in some way wilderness life. And maybe he's not calling people out to, you know, eat grasshoppers, but I do think that there's something that, that communicates about the possibility of living this kind of life that John is calling you to means separating yourself in some sort of a way mm-hmm. from the urban life, from the imperial life, and making some sort of radical life choices that we might not immediately be prepared to make. Yeah. Okay. I want. I have one other thought on this. Again, I I just am so captivated by how even now, like the beginning of this reading, we did pushed us forward so fast. Yes. And then we landed on John for a moment. And so yes. I was like, okay, John, yes. got it. And then, and John, and then John's like, no, not me. Yeah. Like we're still pointing forward. I'm not, yes. you're not there yet. I'm not the landing place. There's not really a question there. I just love it. So John is important, but he is not the final but stop on not, the Right. We're not stream. stopping here. Yeah. Right. This was and just so he's a, pointing to one. You think this is a, a thing that you're doing, like this is a commitment that you're making, but there's yet another one. And there's, there's a sense of the amplification of what's coming mm-hmm. next. Mm-hmm. Baptism with water, baptism with the Holy Spirit. I think that idea there that in some way Jesus is going to bring, bring a spirit from the 
divine that's going to make yet another sort of transition in people's commitments to the, the way of God. The other thing that's important to me there is that in verse five, it's everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem. So it is easy to get confused here and think that John is sort of baptizing people away from their one religious tradition into some other new religious tradition, Mm. maybe pulling people away from Judaism into Christianity, but Christianity doesn't exist in this moment. Yeah, that's not what's happening. And it is very much that people who are Jewish are coming out to John to sort of recommit to being Jewish in a way that's sort of going back to the roots, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe we've lost touch with the core. Maybe we've lost touch with the Torah way of life. Mm -hmm. So they're recommitting themselves to that. And that's the precursor for what Jesus's ministry is going to be, which is not pulling people away into something else, but making people recommit to what has already been for, for a long time. Yeah, I mean, and we need to do that all the time. It is, the yes. world is a wildly distracting place. It is, it is so much so, yeah. All right, are you ready to move on? I think so. Okay, then I'm going to pick up in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. This got real trippy. It did, (laughs) yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. It is Jesus just like a regular guy when this begins, or like does? Yeah, that I leave my question there. Is Jesus a regular guy? <laughs> we do not know in Mark's gospel. In the other gospels, we have known since Jesus was a baby that he is yeah. not just a regular guy. Yeah. Mark has chosen to tell us the story of Jesus without telling us any of that, and so. Whether we take that to mean Jesus is just a regular guy or whether we take that to mean his special status is not important in this moment, I don't know. But Mark clearly thinks we can tell the story of Jesus without all that background. There were early Christians, sometimes called adoptionists, who believed that Jesus was a righteous person who then was adopted as God's son in this moment, actually, at the baptism. And so Mark's gospel was important to them because they said, look, he's a human being whom God has now claimed as God's own. Mm-hmm. I think it's entirely possible to read Mark's gospel that way. I think it's also entirely possible, as most Christians will do today, to say Jesus was already important, already the son of God, already all of these things. And yet he comes to this moment of baptism. So if you if one thinks about it the second way, sort of mm-hmm. bringing in what we've learned from other gospels about Jesus's birth and childhood, why does he need to be baptized? Yeah. By John no less, who has said there's someone coming, you know, more powerful than Right. Him. Yeah, he just literally he just said this one who is coming, I'm not even worthy to loosen the strap of his sandals. I couldn't even untie that yeah. guy's shoes. Yeah. And now here he is saying baptize me. Yeah. which indicates some sense that 
the one doing the baptism is at least in that moment, superior might not be exactly the right word, but officially more important on the hierarchy than the one being baptized. And so it's an uncomfortable sort of statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We read Matthew's version of this last year and Matthew sort of famously has John say, oh no, no, I couldn't possibly baptize you, Jesus. And then Jesus says, no, you have to, to fulfill all righteousness. Mm-hmm. But we don't, we don't get that in Mark's gospel, and which probably means Matthew read Mark's gospel and was really uncomfortable with it, mm. uh, as we might be as well. The way that I read it is, this is Jesus sort of submitting himself publicly to this idea that one no matter who you are, needs to make a public recommitment to following the kingdom of heaven, the way of the Torah, over and against the way that you have previously been living, which is in the logic of the empire. And so for me, this marks a transition in Jesus's own life between being somebody who's living the way that is given to him. I mean, not Mm -hmm. to say that he wasn't a Torah follower or whatever, but that his life was not visibly different until this moment when he sort of recommits himself and or publicly recommits himself. Yeah, and then everybody yeah. can see, oh, here, even Jesus has to make this commitment. And that marks the beginning of Jesus really trying to live out the kingdom of heaven here and now. Mm-hmm. I think there's, I'm sure there are other ways of getting at that, but that's sort of how I have come to read it. Bobby, when people are baptized now, is it in any way this sort of like the phrase in my mind is like imitatio dei? Like, do they do it because Jesus did it or no? That is such a good question. We definitely remember that, you know, there's a baptism of the Lord Sunday, which is in early January, where we remember and we recall our baptisms in light of Jesus's Mm -hmm. baptism. Mm -hmm. In the baptism liturgies that I can think of, Jesus's baptism isn't the first thing we think about. It's through Paul's discussion in the letters about baptism and those who believe are baptized and the sort of washing away of sin and death to one world and resurrection in another world or something like that. And I guess the Jesus story is in the background if you know it, but it's usually not, it's not first and foremost. Yeah, yeah. So we don't say, yeah. like when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we say, Jesus did this on the night he was arrested. And so therefore and we so do it So that's why too. we're doing it. Yeah. Baptism, we Got do it. not say that so explicitly, at least in my tradition. Okay. I want to talk about this incredible moment of the heavens tearing apart. Yes. I don't even know what to say about it. I just, no. oh, the, just the, just like sitting with the thought that the action of, I mean, I'm going to call Jesus a person here, but I know that's a little complicated, but like that, that an action that can happen on earth can have that kind of reverberation and like reflection in heaven is just so beautiful. It is beautiful. Yes. Do you have anything else to say about that? Do you have something smarter to say about that? No, no, no. I love that. It's really nice. It really is beautiful. The, there is a thinness between mm. heaven and earth that occurs in the moment of the baptism of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, so we're, we're in the context of this being called into a different way of life. And here the sort of 
reference point for that different way of life is made abundantly clear to us as readers that this is this is the heavenly way this is baptism into the into the heavenly realm or the way of the kingdom of heaven and it's right now it's in that person of Jesus i love your observation that it's a human action john's baptizing of jesus that evokes this response in the heavens i love thinking about the directionality of it that mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. and to extrapolate beyond jesus and to say yes like other things that other humans do heaven responds or at least could respond yeah to those as well we, we talked a couple yeah. of weeks ago about the gabriel's announcement of the birth of john to zechariah as being a response to zechariah's prayer and there we saw the heavens responding to human mm-hmm. action. Here we see it again. And so I, I I really love that idea. Yeah. The other thing that's happening in Mark's version of this story, which is different than what happens in some other versions, is it says, Jesus saw heaven splitting open and the spirit said to him, you are my son. Mm. And so the impression that you get if you just read this story absent the other gospels is that Jesus has had this experience, but maybe no one else around him has actually seen any of this. Yes. The the baptism shows Jesus heaven, the spirit comes on him. He realizes his belovedness, but it's still a secret from everyone around. Mm. We know as readers, because we got to read it, but the people, you know, on those shores of the Jordan have no idea that any of this has happened. And Jesus's identity remains mysterious to them. Yeah. For a long time. What a sort of secret to hold. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially because <laughs> immediately afterwards, he's driven into the wilderness and tempted by Satan. Oh also by himself, as far as I can tell from the text. Yeah. Well, he has the angels and the wild beasts. That contrast between, I love verse 11 so much. And the, the way it's translated in the CEB you are my son whom I dearly love. In you, I find happiness. Mm. I love the way they phrase that last bit, that God is sort of finding delight in Jesus. Yeah. You don't often think of God as being delighted with things. <laughs> At least, I, I mean, you don't see that language too often. And here yeah. God is is happy. Bobby and then immediately the result of that is like, bam, out you go into the wilderness. Okay, first, I seriously thought you were going to say that this delight reminded you of my dad's delight at um, oh, yeah. powerlifting, which yeah. would have really been a different direction to take a it. A different direction to go, but yes. In some ways, it almost fits in together with the directionality that you were just talking about. I have in my mind, for whatever reason, this expectation that things unfold the according to God's plan. God is driving when things happen, and God causes yes. things to happen to yes. us. And we see in these texts a reversal of that on several occasions. And similarly, I don't think of us as having the capacity to delight God. Yes. Whereas God could bring us delight. And again, right. this reverses that. There's a, there's, I don't know, more of a, a back and forth or a, f- a mutuality or some kind yes. of, it complexifies that relationship a little bit in a really lovely way. It is. I appreciate your saying it that way. Yeah. So why, why the wilderness and Satan? Yeah. And it's not just that, it's not that Satan grabbed Jesus and forced him into the wilderness. It's that the spirit, (laughs) Holy Spirit forced Jesus into the wilderness. 
And you almost get the sense of like, even yet while the voice was still lingering in the air that said, you are beloved, Jesus is like, shoof. It's yes. a, it's a stark, I mean. <laughs> stark is a good sh- word. Yeah, yeah. shocking. Mm-hmm. The way that I read it is this way of life into which Jesus has been baptized is not an easy way of life. And it is one that drives you sometimes away from the centers of things into difficult places where you have to wrestle with the things that tempt you. And this is a recognition that the way of life given to us by God, the kingdom of heaven, the Torah, is not a natural way that is just easy peasy, but it's like a decision that you constantly have to make and remake. And it sometimes feels like you're all alone in the wilderness. And that's true of Jesus. That's true of us. And so even though we have said this is good news, even though we have said Jesus is dearly loved, yet here he is in the wilderness being tempted. And so why would you and I think it's going to be any different for us? I don't know how that, like, you have to squint just right for that to be good news, right? But, but that seems to be what it is. Yeah. What do you do with the wilderness? I want to throw in a reference to the Exodus there, but, mm, yes. but I almost don't even want to pull it out too long because I feel like once you, once you pull it out, you're like, oh, yeah, right. Another situation in which the chosen beloved one of God is in the wilderness for, in that case, 40 years. Yes. And is, you know, I know that that Jews and Christians sometimes have some disagreement about who is the suffering servant. Yeah. <laughs> but I know that that the Jewish experience through history has sometimes been that to be chosen by God entails a lot of struggle. Yes. As it does, as it does certainly in this text. I think that is also the message of Mark's gospel, not the only one, but I think that is a message of Mark's gospel and many Christians therefore resist Mark's gospel because it is, it's exactly connecting following God with the possibility of struggle. And yeah. we don't want to think about that. Right. And it's, and it's good news, but it's not good news. Like, like a balloon display in a birthday party. Good news. <laughs> yeah. Like it's not cotton candy. Good news. Yeah. It's, I don't like cotton candy. It's too much for me. So, you know, that's fine. But I had another thought as you were talking, Bobby, and you said something about Jesus going into the wilderness to deal with Jesus's own temptations, mm-hmm. you know? And I was thinking actually about a, a Jewish text that I read recently related to the story of Jacob and Esau. And when Jacob and Esau, you know, they're brothers who have separated after much strife and are about to encounter each other again. And Jacob is afraid that maybe Esau will try to kill him. And then there's this strange scene where Jacob wrestles with an angel. Yeah. An angel, maybe something. We're not quite sure what is happening. And this reading that I found so compelling was that Jacob had to wrestle with his own stuff before he could encounter his brother, lest he project all of it onto, like, you, you just can't through the... You can't move through the complexities of the world unless you deal with your stuff. I think that's a beautiful connection. And of course, we read that text earlier mm-hmm. this year. And so that text is in the background, also in the sort of narrative lectionary trajectory. You and I also talk with some frequency about as difficult as the wilderness period was for Israel, Moses, when we get to Deuteronomy, is really concerned 
that it was actually easier in some way to be dependent yes. on God in the wilderness. And yes. the real challenge is when you get to the promised land flowing with milk and honey, how are you going to handle that? Yes. And I think that text is here too. If, if you've got to be able to handle the temptation in the wilderness before you can go back to this place that is so abundant and so luxurious and there's so much possibility and still be true to your values. Yes. And, and to go back into the world where you can be deluded into thinking that yes. you are independently in control of yes. what's happening and you yes. are making everything happen. Whereas in the wilderness, the angels waited on him. I don't know what exactly that means, but there is a sense of vulnerability that is really in yes. your face. You are aware of your vulnerability in yes. the wilderness. The angels are also so important there, and I tend to skip past them, but it's not that Jesus is alone in the wilderness. It's that he's alone in the wilderness, and then there are angels who take care of him. Yeah. And so God doesn't just abandon you in the yeah. wilderness, but it might feel like that for a time. Yes, but that you're right. That is not that is not what's happened. Is there anything else you would like to draw out from this section? I don't think so. All right, then I'm going to take us to the end, picking up in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's yet another instance where... Mark just goes so fast. Like, again, he's talked the fact that John was arrested, which seems like an important thing. It's just <laughs> in this little dependent clause. Like, yes. so at, we're not going to tell that part of the story, right. but you should, I'm just going to note that it has happened, but we're not going to, we're not going to draw it out. So I'm going to give you an option, Bobby. Do you want to draw it? You can either draw it out or, or I would love to hear like, what, why doesn't he say more about that? So it's interesting. He drops it right here and then he's going to come back and tell that story in Mark six, mm. which is way down the line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we'll talk, we'll actually talk about that in a few weeks on the podcast. Newly this year, I have discovered in year two of the narrative lectionary that Mark six text has been added in. And so he's sort of foreshadowing it here, but he doesn't want to talk about it right now. He just wants you to know that it happened. The way that I process it in this moment is, I mean, what, so what we have is Jesus, we've said this is good news. Jesus has been baptized, told that he is dearly loved, goes out in the wilderness where he struggles for 40 days. John, who is the one who baptized him, is now arrested. And then Jesus says, Trust the good news. And so we are messing with the notion of good news in the ways that you and I have been talking about, but it keeps, it just keeps, the hits keep on coming, you know, yeah. this good news is going to get you pushed into the wilderness. It's going to get you arrested. It's going to get you in trouble. 
And yet it is still emphatically good news. The kingdom is coming. Commit yourself to this way of life. It's going to get you arrested. It's going to get you tempted. Spoiler alert, it might get you crucified. But here's the, here's the way of life that is on offer to you. So let's go. If you can hear that, I mean, it's, it's an invitation. It is a challenge. It is a, you know, it's, you know, this is not a cakewalk that we're getting ready to embark on. But this is the nature of the good news. That, that's sort of how I, how I process it. Hmm. What would you say about that? I'm processing your processing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One moment, please. I think that reframing of what it means for something to be good is so important. I mean, it's important for me and it's important for the people of this time. Maybe it's important at every time. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you think this phrase kingdom of God mm-hmm. that's in verse 15. Mm-hmm. What do you, th- what do you, th- what do you, <laughs> well, how do you think people would have heard that? Or what do you think Mark is going for or Jesus is going for? Is, is that this idea that the, the, the world as it should be as described in the Torah, if all of the things were actually happening the way they should be, that that is is coming soon or does it have some other i don't know some other thing it's pulling in your mind the way i read it is not only is it coming soon but it has now arrived in the ministry of jesus it has mm-hmm. not fully arrived the kingdom of rome still has its power if you look around the kingdom of Rome has all the power. And yet here is this moment in which Jesus is saying, I am inviting you to participate in the kingdom of heaven here and now. You know what it looks like because we've been talking about it since Moses. And now it's possible to live that way differently because Jesus has arrived. And if you try to live that way, it's going to, cause problems for you with the kingdom of Rome, which still very much is also present. But, that's but there's okay. an invitation. Yeah. Right. But that's okay. That is, that is as it should be. Right. And so then the baptism, this call to a different way of life is exactly a call to live in the kingdom of heaven here and now over and against living in the Roman empire, even though they're overlapped. Mm. Which is exactly the call then that, you know, in my translation, Jesus says, repent, which yes. in my head, I translate into Hebrew as, yes. you know, the verb to really to return, to turn, yes. shuv, tshuva. Yeah, yeah. And so that that pulls on sort of how it describes what the baptism was doing. And as you were saying before, it's not repent like you're such a terrible person and you should feel bad about yourself. It's go back to that. Yes godly way of being that we all know what it is. We're just not doing it because it's really hard. That is so important, Amy. I love it when you remind me about that, that this is the sense of it is going back to your roots, going back to the way it's supposed to be. It's not, I mean, it is a new way of life, but it's a 
the new way of life is a recommitment to something that is very old and the sense in which it has been there. We have, maybe we have even achieved it from time to time. And so I like that simultaneous calling forward and also looking backwards for where we're headed. I think, I think holding those two together is so important. And then we get such an example of this turning, literal mm. turning to, yeah. <laughs> from what you're doing in the story of the fisherman. Yeah. I always, it, it, it makes me laugh every time I read the phrase <laughs> fisher. I will make you fish for people. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you, can you just draw out for a moment? What do you, what do you think Jesus is going for? And in, in using that like phrase and speaking to fishermen and saying, I will make you fish for people. That's a weird thing to say. It's a weird thing to say. And, you know, I go back and forth about whether the fishing metaphor is the important part or whether it's the mm. reconfiguring of the fisherman's skill set towards something related to humanity. That's that second way of thinking about it is where I am tending to land because I, I know how to get my head around it better. One of the things that is sometimes lost in this text, I mean, it's really subtle, is in verse 20, James and John leave their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired workers. Now, sometimes people think of the disciples of Jesus as having been like low, low-class fishermen. Mm-hmm. But in fact... They seem to have owned the fishing operation. And so their father is there with the men they hired to do the labor. I mean, they also did the labor, but they were like business owners. And so they're a little bit higher on the class scale. Yeah. The fishing industry in Galilee was an enormous moneymaker for the Roman Empire. And the, the taxes that were levied and the, all of those sorts of things places those fish were taken and sold so much money flowing that direction to the Roman empire. And so one way of reading this is to say, take these skills that you have, that you have been putting to work in the making of money for the empire and leave that behind and orient them toward the, orient them humanly orient them toward human beings in a way that makes a difference for those human beings. Yeah. Now that metaphor results in people being treated like fish, which is like a whole other, a whole uh, yeah, other thing. Right. We don't want to go too into the nitty yeah. gritty of it. Yeah. But if it's like, take the skill set that you can make money with and figure out how to use it for the good of humanity. That That's what I think is yeah. the, the key point here. No, I, I love that. I love the idea of taking your, your talents and your time and your limited days on earth and Turning, reorienting yes. towards the thing that you thought was the goal yes. is not actually the goal. Yes. You know, the capitalist goal or the empire goal, whatever, however we want to describe it. You've done really well for yourself in that regard or done well enough for yourself. But that wasn't actually the right goal. So what happens now if you shift and devote all of your energy and talent towards this other yes. thing? And that turning back toward God is also a turning back toward humanity in the way mm. that the Torah mm-hmm. frames so nicely in Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. In Leviticus 19, love your neighbor, love the immigrant as yourself. Mm-hmm. 
when you turn back toward God, you also turn back toward your fellow human being. And so this call to participate in the kingdom of heaven is now also a call to orient yourself towards people, not toward profit. Yes. I like that much more than trap people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Trap people People are always like, do fish fish really want to be caught? Like they probably would rather live their little fishy lives. Yeah, probably so. I'm sure they would. Like, yes. Probably so. Mm -hmm. Never interviewed a fish. No. But hey, would you like to get caught in a net and be eaten for supper? Really just would you like to be caught in a net? Mostly no. Mostly no. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I know people who have tried to unpack that metaphor and with more and less success. But mm-hmm. to me, it's too the metaphor. You can't take it too far. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that I think that's right. Also, I don't know how to f- fish for fish, really, let alone fish for people. But if you say like, can you, you know, use your skills as a Bible scholar or as a pastor or as a whatever skill set? And figure out how to orient it toward human beings. Like, absolutely, I can figure that out. Yes. So thinking of it that way actually makes it more relevant to me and also puts more pressure on me. Yes. Because, you know, if it's like, can you go fish for people? I'm like, not, no, not, no. Um, (laughs) Nope, cannot. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting and compelling that, that they go. They don't know who this guy is. They don't know he had a vision when he was baptized and- you know, that he brings delight to guy yeah. to God. He's just a guy. But no, there's right. something about what he says that suggests to them there is something more you could be doing. And yes. I think a lot of us often have that sense when we got get too caught up in the oh, day-to-day that. doing of things. Yeah. That when someone says, shift your shift your horizon and it will be better. You, it, you just know that that's true, even if I you don't know that, what that Amy. means. So like deep in your soul, you're kind of wishing someone would beckon you toward a different way of life. Yeah. Give me a different option. I love that. Mm. Then you can see yourself sort of as the one who is being called, right? As we were just talking about. But then you can also see yourself as the, it's always dangerous to see yourself as Jesus, but like as the one... <laughs> inviting people to the other way of life. It's not that you're trying to force people to do something they don't want to do, but you're trying to invite them into a possibility that they already wish for, but may not think is possible. May need a nudge because there's a lot of outside pressure to stay in the path you're, you know, on. Yeah. Oh, Bobby, there's lots of good stuff in here. What is rising up for you today? I mean, in the way that I do when I read Mark, I feel like I've been saying the same thing over and over already since we started. Uh, but it's a good thing, um, I think, that it's this is to me the sort of essence of gospel right here, which is that the arrival of Jesus on the scene is an invitation to an alternative way of life, which is here described as the kingdom of heaven, which has come near. And it is being offered as an alternative to the way of life of the kingdom of Rome. And we're being invited into it. The invitation is good news. The invitation is also that the powers that be might not see your participation in the kingdom of heaven as good news. And therefore it might be struggle for you. Mm -hmm. And nonetheless, this thing is 
human oriented in a way that the empire, the logic of the empire is not human oriented. So this way of life to which we are being invited is to put off the daily grind yeah. of our work on the boats and to say, I have been offered an opportunity to put my skills and my gifts and my talents to work on behalf of humanity. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go and do that. There's a lot of risk there. A, a risk that I think is really hard to take. And I am often like trying to take the risk while also, you know, figuring out how to participate in the empire enough to like, have a yeah. retirement account and things like yeah. that. Yeah. It's a scary invitation, but it is also such a hopeful invitation to say, we could, in returning to the way of life we are called to by God, both participate in the kingdom of heaven and live a life that has value for humanity. And that's what we're being invited to. Just seems like such a beautiful invitation, a challenge, but it's so much more than like, sometimes Christianity is like, if you believe in Jesus, you can go to heaven. <laughs> like, Okay, I mean, all right, like that's good news. But like, if you follow Jesus here and now, you can participate in the kingdom of heaven today yeah. by turning your skills toward the well-being of your fellow human beings. That is such a more compelling invitation to me. And mm. I think that's what is being offered here in this text. Mm -hmm. I love it. What about you when you read? I know it's always so interesting as a, not as a, somebody for whom this is a sacred text, trying to find your way in the Christian scriptures. Yeah. What do you see in this text that you find valuable? You know, the in the first part of this reading, I was really, it had me thinking, the, the pace of it, the the sort of way that that Mark just like steps down for a moment on something and then takes like sort of a jumping, he jumps into something else. Yeah. Had me thinking about what my own life is is preparing mm. the path for. Oh, like I love if that. what yeah, what if if I were just yeah. a jumping off point pointing towards something else, like I'm not the end point, but what am I pointing toward? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now thinking about the way we were just talking about that, the last section of text, I think it, I think that resonates with it too. This idea that like what you are doing in your daily life, the day to day, how you spend your moments in your body on earth points to something. What does it point to? Yes. Does it? Yes. Yeah. What, what is it? What does it point to? What does it facilitate? That is such a lovely way of reading this text. And it's a little, what's the word you use? Convicting? Like, like yeah. oh, I don't know. What is on yeah. my schedule today? I don't know. But it's it's very compelling. And yeah, Mark Mark is is pulling my eyes to important places. So Yes. Um, so I appreciate that. Yeah, I love that, Amy. Okay, so next week, we're skipping a little bit, but not too much. We are picking up in Mark chapter 2 reading again about 20 verses, 1 to 22. I look forward to where Mark wants to draw my attention then. Yes, it's a, that's a really, it's a good text. As are they all, as are they all. As are they all, yes. All right, Amy, well, have a happy rest of your birthday. Oh, thank you. I hope you get to do something other than clean your house. 
Yeah, I'll find something else to do. <laughs> yeah. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Next week, we'll pick up with Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Until then, keep on digging.